Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Rajiv Chandrasekharan, Senior Correspondent and Associate Editor of The Washington Post. Rajiv, welcome to Profiles. Great to be here with you. Your parents were from India, but they came to the United States. Why? Education. They both went to Berkeley, uh, came here in the 1960s. Did they know each other when they came? Uh, They did. Uh, They had uh, what was rare for the time in India, a love marriage. And so my father had had been here earlier uh, doing some some other graduate work, but uh, when they came together, they they did know each other. Now, they were part, I guess, of... uh a new generation of Indians who became Indian Americans or the parents of Indian Americans. What was what was their goal beyond education? Did they intend to stay here? Uh, perhaps not initially, but when it became clear that employment opportunities were far better, India back then you know, hadn't entered the globalized world. Uh, my father was a chemical engineer. Uh, far more exciting opportunities over here than back home. And so he decided to stay in Northern California, which is where they continue to live today. And that's where you were born then? That's right. How did you get interested in journalism? You know, it was when I was maybe in fifth or sixth grade. I was homesick one summer and was watching reruns of the old show Lou Grant starring Ed Asner. I thought, hey, Newspapering sounds fun. He was a grizzled old city editor. And this uh, seemed like an interesting line of work. And that summer, I think I was also working on the summer camp newspaper. Decided I'd – I came back to junior high school that I'd start a newspaper at junior high. And I may be one of the few people I know who – what they wanted to be at a young age, they actually went out and became – and I'm, I'm anachronistic in a slightly different way. I started working for the Washington Post uh, the Monday after I graduated from Stanford University. Been there ever since. And that that's kind of odd for uh, somebody of my generation to have worked for one employer his entire adult life. But before that, I can't imagine that your parents were happy with an interest in journalism. Oh, they just thought it was a phase that I'd grow. And they were willing to humor it because they thought, hey, you know, give it another year and he'll be off doing something more productive with his life. And so when I went off to college, I declared my major initially as chemical engineering because that's what my dad did and seemed like a, a good thing to do. Of course, I hated it. I switched over to biology. But after my sophomore year, I decided, you know, I really want to spend more time with the school newspaper and political science would be a better fit. Yeah, they initially didn't take it very well. They thought I'd be uh, unemployed and or living hand to mouth in some small town working for some, you know, weekly publication. But they did continue to humor me after that initial knockdown drag out because they figured, ah, he'll get out of his system and then he'll go off to law school or do something. And I, I did I did sort of uh uh try to convince them of that early on, that I'll do this for a little while and then I'll go to grad school. Never did. I just have a bachelor's. In fact, you know, there are people who say that, you know, they're the first in their family to go to college. I'm the least educated male in my family in at least four generations. <laughs> Every male in my family has a doctorate, an MD or a PhD, even, even the women. My, uh, my mother, my maternal grandmother, both have master's degrees. I'm the black sheep who just has a lowly bachelor's. And we'll get to this later, but your books have published more copies than most academics will ever publish in their lives. <laughs> yes, but doesn't count towards something that hangs on the wall. Though that said, after several years at the Post, and I think it was one Thanksgiving when I was regaling some family friends with some stories from the world of journalism, and and hearing my father sort of speak about it in a in a proud way uh, became clear to me that he was finally at peace with what I was doing, and he shortly thereafter stopped asking when I'd be heading off to law school. 
you were at Stanford, and if my memory correct, if my memory serves me correctly, Stanford does not have an undergraduate journalism program. That's is that correct. Right? So you were either self-taught or you were tutored at the Stanford Daily. Is that right? Uh, more the latter. You know, it was probably the most expensive vocational training program one could have had. Four years of private school tuition to essentially get a little bit of on-the-job training from fellow undergraduates at the school newspaper. Spent much of my time there instead of availing of the many other wonderful attributes of that university. Sometimes I wonder if I just had the discipline to go off and study computer programming. Boy, be living a very different <laughs> life today. You finished up there by being editor-in-chief, um, which is a, an interesting position for college newspapers because most people want to be reporters, photographers, and, and things like that. They don't necessarily think about what we could call administration. What did you learn in that time as editor-in-chief? You know, I was the CEO of an independent student-run company with a $1.2 million annual budget a 15,000 circulation daily paper, and 100, 100 people working for me. It was an awful lot of responsibility for a 21-year-old. It was an incredibly valuable experience that was not just about journalism, but it was about leadership and management. And I think uh, helped me learn some incredibly valuable lessons early on. Um, and I think it, it kind of rounded out what I was getting from my student journalism experience, that it wasn't all just about taking pictures or writing stories. You mentioned already that you went to work right after graduation for the Washington Post. How did you make the connections with the Post? After all, the Post is on the East Coast. Stanford is on the West Coast, so far as I know. Applied for a summer internship. Got lucky. And what was your first kind of reporting assignments? Oh, you know, the standard stuff, Metro staff. Covering traffic accidents, homicides. Well, no school board meetings that first summer. It was, it was summertime. But filling in, doing all sorts of lowly assignments that other people didn't want to do. Now, I wasn't angling for a job. In fact, after my four years at Stanford, I, much to the chagrin of my parents, still had not accumulated enough units to graduate. So my plan was to go back, finish up my 15 units of incompletes. And then figure out what I was going to do with my life, apply for other journalism jobs. Well, I suppose not having the pressure of trying to angle among my fellow interns for the two uh, jobs that were on offer at the end of the summer meant that I was just able to do the work I wanted to do. And then I found myself in the very awkward position of being called into the Metropolitan Editor's office and being offered a two-year internship with the promise of it turning into a full-time job and having to admit to him that I actually had not yet graduated. And I would be happy to take that job, but might I please have a month off to go back and finish up all of my incomplete coursework? He gave it to me. That's good. Uh, when I was an undergrad, this Internet thing was in its infancy. And we actually at the Stanford paper – had used um, a very basic version of Apple software that I think would eventually turn into QuickTime to create two multimedia reports, video that was distributed over the campus network. It didn't seem at that point to, to be something that would have immediate sort of scalable implications. And I was going to the Washington Post, which – was a large and incredibly healthy paper. It was growing. You know, at its height, the Post's penetration in the D.C. area was something like 60% of households. It was, it was an amazing business. And we had a, a robust stable of foreign correspondents, domestic bureaus. The future seemed pretty bright. Yeah, people were concerned about competition from cable television news. CNN was a, you know, still in its first decade at that point. But newspapers were still where it was at. And so the the disruptions that have racked our industry really wouldn't become apparent to me 
for another few years. Your first specialized reporting area was technology. Did you choose that or did it choose you? A little bit of both. You know, I was a kid two years out of college. I'd used this newfangled thing called email back at school. And I suppose that and my my youth were the principal qualifications for a, a job covering technology back then. And it was it turned out to be a be a, a great decision because I wound up turning the job into a job focused more on issues of technology policy, that being how Washington was trying to get its head around this new part of the American economy. And when the Justice Department later decided to sue the Microsoft Corporation for allegedly infringing or violating our antitrust laws, that was a story I got to cover. A lot of front page pieces and it eventually led to the foreign editor taking notice of me and offering me a job overseas. So in hindsight, a good move. How does a foreign editor become impressed with somebody's domestic reporting and say he would make a good foreign correspondent? Well, that's I suppose what makes a good foreign editor, that they're able to see uh, somebody doing good work in other areas and say this person can can operate overseas. I'm not sure – you know, you get lucky all the time but um, in this case, he – he thought that maybe I'd be willing to to say yes to that adventure, and uh, it was was getting a bunch of front page pieces, so he was able to see that I could I could write big stories. Had you ever pictured yourself as a foreign correspondent? No. So what? Why did you then say yes? I'll do that. As an undergrad, I spent so much time at the school newspaper that I didn't avail of opportunities to study abroad. After graduating, getting that job at the Post meant I couldn't take a year bumming around Europe. So here was a chance to go and live overseas, paid for by somebody else. thought, you know, if you get this chance, you got to avail of it. Go see the world. Uh, and go see go see parts of the world that you'd never get to see as a tourist. I still regard my years overseas as the as the most fun, sightful years I've had. You started out, and I think it was defined as Southeast Asia, but larger than um, people of an earlier generation referred to Southeast Asia as Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. It was the old Saigon bureau that eventually moved to Bangkok, then Manila. And plus, I got to cover the whole region, Burma in the west to the Philippines, down south to Australia. How do you do that? Uh, it's, I mean, when you think about it's a full-time job to cover one country and then trying to figure out what the agenda – getting there, you learning spend, about the countries. You spend a lot of time on planes and you try to multitask and you don't try to cover everything everywhere. You pick your targets. You look for good stories and – you try to be strategic. You try to get to places at the right moment, but um, you don't. Uh, you understand what you can and can't do. I viewed a region like that as a great opportunity because you could essentially pick from the best. You didn't. You didn't feel tied down with, you know, obligatory streams of coverage. If you were in Jerusalem, if you were in Moscow, there was a, be a lot of stuff you just have to to do because it had to be done. You're was covering a beat, babysitting a bureau. Here, I just got to go and tell stories. What defined your agenda? Yeah, it was different things in different places. I, I, I don't think there was ever a, a, a one uniform theme running through it. I think I read that one of the stories you covered was the Olympics. Did you do this for the sports page or – no, I was I was doing the Olympic stuff for the A section, uh, which for looked, for listeners who don't know is the front section. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, the the sort of political economic pieces and you know the guy on scene in case there's a terrorist attack to be able to write the well, 
the hard news story. You first went to Afghanistan after um, the attacks in the United States in September 2001. What do you remember from that experience? It was a brief, harrowing journey. I have one of the last ever Taliban visas that were issued stamped into my passport. Went in with a small group of foreign journalists into a border town in southern Afghanistan to hear statements from Talib leaders that they would never surrender, of course. They would before long. Then I went off and foolishly snuck into the desert south of Kandahar, jumped in a pickup truck, changed into shalwar kameez, local dress, and headed off with some Pakistani smugglers in search of evidence of U.S. Special Forces activity down in that part of the country. Very, very dangerous thing. Very foolish. I should never have done it. But that was my my first experience in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. I wouldn't immediately return, actually, because I had to cover events in Pakistan. Uh, Then it's a long story and not worth burdening your listeners with, but I was arrested and deported from Pakistan. Uh, So then I wound up in India and the Philippines uh, writing about issues of terrorism there uh, and continued to, to do stuff in the region all centered around the global war on terror. Now, had you had you volunteered for Afghanistan, this area, or did you get a missive from the Post said, it's time, Rajiv, to go? Well, I got a note on the night of 9-11 asking me to get to Pakistan. And I would have been disappointed if I hadn't been called up to go. After what occurred on 9-11, uh, I wanted to be a part of covering the American response, examining why and how this could have happened, delving into the story. So if I had just been told to go back and hang out in Southeast Asia and do whatever I wanted to do, I'd have been sorely disappointed. Did you have an idea of where this story was going? Did you expect to find the Taliban all evil, the United States all good? It was hard to know back then. I mean, certainly the the broad stereotypes, I knew enough to be wrong. But I really wouldn't get a chance to test all of that right away. By 2002, I had foolishly put up my hand to move to the Middle East. It was well before my tour in Southeast Asia was up, but the Bureau and our, our correspondent in Cairo was going to be leaving. They needed somebody to fill that. To me, it seemed like a great adventure, and I sort of said, hey, if you don't mind me leaving early, I'd love to go there. Sure, there was all this talk about war in Iraq, but I thought, ah, it's all a bunch of talk. Push comes to shove. We'll pelt them with some cruise missiles. I'll go in, write about that for a week, and then go back to doing what correspondents based in Cairo have traditionally done. Go visit the souk in Marrakesh, hang out with a camel train in Yemen. Um, Then it would be a, a fun, diverse experience. Yeah, writing a little bit about terrorism, but not entirely. Found myself... However, in Baghdad, and that was by September of 2002. So six months then before yes. the American attack. Yeah. And I spent the bulk of those six months in Iraq, uh, one of a small number of Western journalists who were allowed in the country um, to observe uh, what was occurring there. It's all very tightly controlled movements were restricted by the government. But it was still an incredibly valuable perspective to see what that country was like under the yoke of the dictator and before the arrival of the Americans. We talked earlier about 
having been tutored by other people at the Stanford Daily, how do you learn the tricks of operating in, um, let's call them restricted mm -hmm. societies where you don't kind have the kind of movement that many journalists in the United States come to expect? So some of it you just got to learn on your own. There's no great guidebook out there for it. Some of it you pick up from seeing how your colleagues are dealing with stuff. You know, when you're overseas, it's very different than when you're, let's say, working in Washington. You know, back in the day before you could Google anything on your phone, if I needed a number and I couldn't get it, if I didn't have it with me, you know, I'd call up the correspondent from the LA Times. We'd share stuff. Journalists are far more collegial overseas. So some of that would come just informally. And then there were a few fellow reporters who sort of took me under their wing various times. One of them, a correspondent for the Boston Globe, who unfortunately was killed in, in Iraq, early on uh, admonished me. She'd covered the Balkans and admonished me when I didn't have, for instance, a little immersion heater. And she said, well, look, you know, if, if, if reliable water supply is disrupted, um, you're going to need this to boil water. You know, how could you come here and not have this and this and that? And so my next break, I arranged to have shipped to me that sort of gear. And you sort of learn along the way. It took me a couple of years of being overseas before I finally assembled a a travel kit that I feel, you know, now was sort of a, an acceptable collection of gear for places I was going to. It's now ex accepted that it is wise for reporters going into danger zones to have special training about how to avoid problems, injuries, etc. Did you have anything? Yeah, I, sp I spent a week in a very – posh British country estate um, getting some hazardous environment training the winter before the Iraq war began. But much of it was devoted to potential biological or chemical attacks and the upshot I took from it is if you're not with the military, by the time it's clear that such a weapon has been used, you're as good as dead. It was some training on what to do if, you know, you find yourself in the middle of a firefight, quite frankly, nothing they can train you in a setting like that is as good as being in one and then learning. The most relevant stuff is first aid. And that's something that journalists aren't taught nearly often enough, don't get enough refresher courses on. You know, the, the great war photographer Tim Hetherington, who was killed in Libya last year, would be alive today if other journalists in the vicinity knew basic life-saving first aid, had applied a tourniquet in the right place. And so it's, it's stuff like that that's actually, I think, far more valuable than the how to tell uh, you know, what type of weapon is being used against you. Let's pause now for some music that has been selected by our guest on Profiles today, Rajiv Chandrasekharan. That was music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, Rajiv Chandrasekharan, author of Little America, The War Within the War for Afghanistan. 
You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. When you went to Baghdad after the American attack, you were, I guess, for the first time a war correspondent. Was that something you had aspired to be? No. But when you find yourself in the middle of it, got to roll with it. I thought I'd do it for a little while. And then, well, look, many of us thought that this thing would be over relatively quickly. Now, I wasn't naive enough to think that it would all be all uh, said and done right away. But I didn't expect the United States to muck up the Reconstruction as badly as we did, which then helped contribute to the ferocity of the insurgency, stupid actions like disbanding the Iraqi army and banning even sort of low to mid-level members of the Ba'ath Party from future government service. So that part of it was was unexpected. But then I started to conclude that I had a ringside seat to an amazing set of events. Agree or disagree with that war, I was able to watch the observe, examine, um, dig into the American engagement there on the ground, my own eyes. So I started to conclude that I was in an incredibly privileged position. You had actually had, I guess one could say, two positions. You were a correspondent, but you were also bureau chief, which I would think in um, the uncertainty of Baghdad and Iraq must have been a, a really difficult job. Yeah, so I didn't sleep much uh, because the logistics of running that operation with at any given time, you know, half dozen American colleagues and at its, at its peak, three dozen Iraqis working for me. Well, big headache, a lot going on. What were the most difficult decisions you had to take as bureau chief? Oh, mostly regard, with regard to security. Um, did it make sense to send somebody to a certain place at a certain time? Might be a good story there, but was it going to be safe? Not early on. Early on, things were pretty safe. We could do whatever we want. But as as the security situation deteriorated, trying to make those calls was 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 incredibly tough. One journalist, I think, who was on your staff that I would ask about is Anthony Shadid, who has since died. What did you learn from him? He was a remarkable, remarkable journalist. Uh, he had many great strengths, uh, not the least of which was being an amazingly gifted writer. But he devoted a lot of time to really obtaining proficiency in Arabic, something that very few other American correspondents had. He was able to understand the Iraqi experience, to engage with them in ways that few other people could. And it showed in his journalism. And it taught me the real power of, of what that, that deep understanding can do. I mean he combined – oftentimes you have people who speak a language but, but are not the world's most fluid writers. He had the unique combination of both. While you were there, I guess you started gathering material for um, the book about the green zone, this kind of safety area. The book was called Imperial Life in the Emerald City. Um, we should tell listeners it won the Overseas Press Club Book Award, a finalist for the National Book Award. An odd topic in a way because that's not where the fighting was taking place. Um, Maybe I guess the place to start in talking about that book, what what's the major theme of the book? 
What's it about? It's about the surreal world the Americans created for themselves in this little enclave in Baghdad called the Green Zone. The American occupation headquarters. Everything worked in there. People drove around in Chevy Suburbans, posted speed limit signs. There was bars and a disco and it was a little bit of America dropped into Iraq. And it was from there that the Americans thought that they could run this country with a bunch of neoconservative political appointees, people chosen more for political fidelity than for subject matter expertise. Those doing the hiring of the Pentagon back then asked individuals for their views on Roe versus Wade and capital punishment before they were allowed to travel to Baghdad. And it was from there that they thought it was a good idea that to essentially disband the Iraqi government and build it from scratch, sort of a year zero strategy. And it was tragic but also darkly comedic, just the sheer ineptitude of the effort. And so while my fellow journalists were all out trying to write about insurgent attacks and fighting among Iraqi political factions or the the growing cloud of the clergy from the Shiite Islamic uh, community. I took a different tack, spent all this time with these Americans inside this enclave. I initially thought it was a little crazy. So did many of my colleagues. Why are you, why are you in there? The real story is out here. But I got some good advice early on from man who was then the Post's foreign editor, who admonished me in the early weeks of my time in Baghdad after the Americans arrived, to think back to the best literature written about the Vietnam War. It wasn't about the Vietnamese. It was about the American experience in Vietnam. It was how the Americans were transformed by that war. And I took that to heart. And I decided to focus on the Americans who were coming, trying to build this new country they thought they could build. Where does the naivete come from that they, that they brought with them? Some from just sheer inexperience, but some from a most noble belief that we're a great democracy – and we can help other people become democratic and prosperous. We can share our lessons with them. We can build things for them that they will then want to carry forward. Hubris perhaps, yes, but also good intentions. There's a difference between writing newspaper articles, even long ones, and writing a book. Was it a challenge for you to make that transition? Oh, yeah. You know, I initially thought that I could write this book with the outtakes in my notebooks, material I didn't use in the newspaper. Soon discover, though, that kitchen scraps don't make a gourmet meal. And so it forced me to go back to people that I had talked to in Baghdad. Oftentimes people who are very busy, you talk to them for an hour here or 30 minutes there. They didn't have time to do anything more. And so I reached back out to them once they'd come home and I had come home. And it was actually totally fortuitous because now I could sit down and talk to them for two, three, four, five hours. And in some cases, people who went there as true believers – and come, had come home as true believers, thinking that as soon as Iraq wrote a constitution, as soon as they held elections, the violence would ebb, that all the good work that they had done would finally be seen for what it was. And when that didn't happen, some of these people began to have a crisis of conscience, and they couldn't really open themselves up to their spouses 
They didn't want to look like they had gone wobbly in front of their colleagues. And so when I showed up, notebook in hand, offering to buy them a coffee or a beer, many of them opened up. And then they said, you, you, want, you want to know what really happened? And they started to tell me these great stories. And then they gave me little USB thumb drives or CDs with emails and memos. And so the bulk of what is in that book actually comes from reporting done after the fact that fills out the narrative. Were you ever concerned that people's memory would be different than what actually happened? It was close enough to the actual events. It wasn't like I was talking to them 20 years after. Somewhere you um, mentioned that the work of Richard Kapuscinski, a famous Polish international correspondent, served as a literary model for you. Um, in the last couple of years, it's become clear that Kapuscinski took liberties with the truth in his writing. Have you reevaluated his writing since then? Well, so this was this was before many of the recent claims of of his exaggeration or fabulism. Yes and no. Uh, it pains me that he was fast and loose with the details. But what he was trying to do still, I think, serves as a model and inspiration. Uh, regardless of what Luanda Angola really was like when he was there and writing Another Day of Life, which I think is a great book, what he was doing, and even if he didn't do this, we should aspire to do this, try to write prose filled that's so vivid that you can taste the city on your tongue. You can hear it in your ears. And maybe maybe in some cases he was too lazy and just made up some stuff. That doesn't mean, though, that it can't be done. And so I still see it as something of a model. But in his case, I say that with, with, with all, all the necessary caveats. Okay. Now, your book inspired the movie Green Zone starring Matt Damon. Uh, now, I said inspired the movie. It's not based on your book. But is it strange sometimes to see the movie and see some of your work in there? Yes, uh, but you know it was it was a very different storyline than the book. But the fact that my book helped motivate Paul Greengrass and Matt Damon to make the movie uh, is something that I I'm proud of. It doesn't pain me that the movie's not the book. Here you had a, a great actor and a great director who were motivated to make a major motion picture about the war because they read my book. So what if they didn't use it word for word? I'm just happy that a lot of Americans were exposed to certain aspects of the conflict on the big screen. It reached a much larger audience than my book ever did. Your newest book is Little America, The War Within the War for Afghanistan. The book goes back to the 1950s, but you first went – when was that? At the time of the surge or before the surge? Uh, a little a little before it, in early 2009. Did you go with the intention to write a book? No. Well, maybe. But I thought if there was a book to be written, it would be a very different book. It would be a book about how Team Obama managed to turn around a failing war. It would be a, a tale of American can-do spirit, not a tale of incompetence. And when did you discover that was not the case? Probably the latter part of 2010. I was going into it with an open mind. I wanted to see whether the surge could work. I, I, I was not going to pronounce it a failure from the get-go. And so I, I, I was – really willing to give the commanders some benefit of the doubt. Was the reporting on the book the same as the Emerald City? No. 
I did most of the reporting for this book contemporaneously. I set out to really report in a way on my trips there and as I was doing my work back in Washington to report with a, with a degree of depth that I could use for the book. So very different approach than I took with Iraq. The book starts with a, a recitation or a description of American efforts to aid Afghanistan um, in the 1950s, um, what ultimately proved to be a failed effort. Um, but even though journalists used to refer to Afghanistanism as this reporting about countries far away about which we knew nothing and should care nothing, and yet somehow I, I have the feeling that compared to Iraq, Afghanistan was the good war. Um, why did it go bad? President Obama also believed that Afghanistan was the good war. It was the war that began with the 9-11 attacks, not the war that began with bogus claims of WMD. The war, the war went bad for many reasons. We took our eye off the ball to go invade Iraq, starve the country of resources and attention. And by the time we tried to refocus, things were pretty far gone. And then we embraced a strategy that was never going to work, a counterinsurgency strategy and a troop surge. Well, for those two have worked, President Hamid Karzai had to be a genuine partner in those efforts. But he wasn't. He didn't want us to rebuild his government. Doing so would have upended his patronage networks, his, his deals with cronies and warlords. So he set out to oppose us in those efforts. Pakistan had to crack down on Taliban sanctuaries on its own soil. It never did. And all this stuff was going to be time-consuming and expensive. The American people had to be willing to spend hundreds of billions of more dollars over several years. With our nation in the throes of economic stagnation, that wasn't a viable proposition either. We tried to do something that was impossible to do under the terms of the arrangement. It turned the good war bad. You know, and the way – put aside the strategic questions, which are grave. And then looks at, let's look at how the war was actually fought. Say, Let's say the surge. It was our strategy. It's what the president had approved. How well did the organs of our government actually go out and implement it? Pentagon sent too many troops to the wrong places. State Department, as I reveal in the book, was supposed to surge its own personnel, diplomats and aid workers into the country. Well, that was late, a year late, and then most of them wound up staying in the comfortable embassy compound in Kabul as opposed to getting out into the field. The U.S. Agency for International Development was supposed to assist this effort with meaningful reconstruction assistance. They did. Afghanistan had been starved of resources during the Bush years. And it's a deserving country. I mean, rates of malnutrition, illiteracy, infant mortality, they're off the charts. But we tried to do too much. In 2010, we tried to pump $4.1 billion into the country for reconstruction programs. That's far more than the country can reasonably absorb. Not surprisingly, it wound up exacerbating the very corruption we were trying to stop. So... In these ways, yeah, the good war did turn bad. Were there alternatives to, to Karzai that could have provided a better result? Sure. And back in 2009 when Afghanistan was having a presidential election, the United States could have made it clear to Karzai that he was to step aside. It could have worked to with our international partners to – encourage other Afghans to run. But we mishandled those elections. And then there was lots of fraud. 
We eventually agreed to let Karzai have a second term. Now it's much tougher. We've recognized him as the democratically elected president of the country. But we should have known that having him there would have been a major impediment to the overall strategy. You used two figures, Marine General Larry Nicholson and Cale Weston of the State Department as key figures in the story. How did you come to structure the book that way? I didn't know I was going to do it initially that way. But I found their relationship and their positions, Cale Weston being a early supporter of Obama, a brave State Department officer who was spending his seventh year between Iraq and Afghanistan, but who believed in the judicious application of American power. And Larry Nicholson, a really committed, hard-charging Marine general, but who wanted to use his forces in a rather expansive way. And the tension there between those two men to essentially be the tension to, to represent the broader tension between military leaders and civilian leaders in Washington. And so they were a way to bring to illustrate that tension on the ground with, with, with through rich personalities. But I also saw that tension as being a fundamentally healthy thing. I, I note in the acknowledgments of my book that their relationship was the, in my view, the gold standard in civil-military relations. And that we're lucky to live in a country where Civilian political advisors and generals can have such frank and candid conversations. And because I know them both well, they trusted me. They allowed me to, to witness some of those exchanges. And I thought the ability to, to convey that, something you don't get all the time, I thought it would add a, uh, a real compelling element to the book. When you say that, I have this interesting question, um, a book very critical about Iraq. You're writing some critical articles about Afghanistan and yet they trust you. How does that happen? Because I'm willing to be fair, um, telling their stories and it's not agenda driven. It's a work of reportage. And they're smart enough to see shortcomings in the policy. Just read a small section here from the conclusion of the book. Uh, I kept hearing promises of how it all would be fixed. New strategies, new teams of officers and diplomats, new requests for money, a new man in the White House. But none of it remedied the core problem. Our government was incapable of meeting the challenge. Our generals and diplomats were too ambitious and arrogant. Our uniformed and civilian bureaucracies were rife with internal rivalries and go-it-alone agendas. Our development experts were inept. Our leaders were distracted. For years, we dwelled on the limitations of the Afghans. We should have focused on ours. So all of this effort through AID and other kinds of organizations, does that have any long-term potential for the U.S.? I think the overall impact of that is questionable at best. We spent a lot of money there. Whatever return we're going to get, it's not going to feel like it's been worth the expense. I'm not saying the war itself is a total failure. I'm not saying that we're going to firmly lose it. I think conventional notions of victory, however, are off the table. But I do think we will be faced with this enduring cost-benefit question. Was building what, what, what will have survived and who knows how much of it will? How much of the army will stay intact? How much of a, of a government will really function there?
will it have been worth the cost? I think the answer is going to be firmly no. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Rajiv Chandrasekharan of the Washington Post and author of the book most recently, Little America. Rajiv, thanks for being here. A pleasure to talk to you. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us today, and we close with more music. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2012. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.